All right, let's go ahead and get started. Last time we got together, which was <clears throat> forever ago, um, <clears throat> it was uh, we talked about we started talking about prophecy, and we talked about amillennialism and premillennialism a little bit, and postmillennialism, those kind of things, and how some of the things that go along with that. Um, but today we want to what I get. Uh, what I've given you, uh, I think the last page of your notes last time where I revised that. Now, this is what we have. Interpreting Prophecy, Part 2, okay? Yours should say something like that. Guidelines to Interpreting Prophecy. Um, <clears throat> this is, you know, every week in this class, you're in, in opening a new can of worms. <laughs> it seems like hermeneutics is all about difficult stuff, interpretation, you know, how, and then you got all these guys out there with all the ways they come across with the scripture and all, and so it's like you're always having to battle these things. So how do we interpret, when we come to prophecy in the Bible, we want to call it eschatology. When you come to the, those kind of things in the Bible, uh, how do we interpret that? Did we, just, did we just throw away the whole system of historical grammatical interpretation? And now we have something new on our hands. So now we have to interpret things a different way. Well, we don't throw that away, although a lot of people are. They get to prophecy and they just throw up their hands and they say, well, let's see, we've got to come up with a new system here. But the first guideline to interpret prophecy is use normal historical grammatical interpretation like we always have in the rest of the Bible. There's nothing new under the sun here. It's the same thing. We keep, we keep going with what we have, we've always done. And this is how all literature is properly interpreted, by the way, Bible or not. You, you go according to the rules of grammar and, and things of that nature. Uh, that's how li literature in general is supposed to be interpreted, by the way. You get to the Bible, the same thing's true, although we know that the Bible is what? It's an inspired book, right? From God. It's a different book. But nevertheless, the laws of language don't change in the Bible. God didn't do that. He didn't suspend the laws of language because then he, he has now produced a book that's inspired by him. Because we wouldn't know how to communicate. He wouldn't know how to communicate. We wouldn't be able to understand what he was saying even unless he communicated us into the language that we understand. So use the normal grammatical interpretation. Prophecy doesn't occur in a vacuum. Um, so when you come to those passages that talk about prophecy, understand the prophets, they spoke in a time frame in history. There were circumstances from which they wrote when they wrote their uh, prophecies. Um, and so we have to understand those circumstances when we get to that prophet. It's not, in other words... When you go to 1 Thessalonians 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 13 to 18, the passage on the rapture, which a lot of people would dispute, but when you get to that passage, that passage isn't primarily, first of all, talking about the rapture. It's talking that there were circumstances going on. Paul was comforting people whose loved ones had died, who believers that had died, and he says in that passage, uh, look, uh, I don't want you to grieve over, you people Thessalonians, I don't want you to grieve over the death of believers like, like those who have no hope. Because we believers have hope. We believe that Christ is coming again one day to take us to be with him. And then he, then he goes off into that subject. So there's a, there's a time, there's a uh, background to this you know, passage, this prophecy. It doesn't occur just all by itself. Um, the dead in Christ are going to rise first. And so there's this background that points to an eschatological event, okay? So make sure we understand the circumstances in the scripture when we come to a passage that's prophetic. What's the background? What's the setting? And all that, just like any other passage in the Bible. Okay. Um, also, understand the historical background. Uh, Bernard Ram says this, a study of history is the absolute first starting point in any study of prophecy. 
So we understand what's going on in history and historical background of that particular passage. And then Ram says that will include the full meaning and significance of all proper names, events, geographical references, customs, culture, even flora and fauna, he says, plant life. <laughs> um, that might shed light on, on, on the prophecy. So it's just like, you know, observations. When you get to the passage on prophecy, observations, same thing you've always done. Is there are names or are there are geographical references, all that kind of thing. Um, and so there's, you keep going with this historical grammatical interpretation. Yes, you take, you know, there's figurative language and prophecy. We all understand that. But uh, that does not mean all prophecy is symbolic. And we throw away all, liter we, we throw away all literal understanding of things, toss it out the window, and now we just have symbols. Take everything in its normal sense unless otherwise indicated. You know, don't look for the deeper meaning, the mystical meaning. Uh, when we come to eschatology, we don't all of a sudden throw away our, uh, the way we've been interpreting the Bible uh, for another hermeneutical pattern. We don't do that. Okay? Number two, numbers should be taken as literal unless otherwise indicated. Numbers to be taken literal unless otherwise indicated. Robert Mounts, <coughs> I believe, wrote a uh, commentary on Revelation. Robert Mounts is the father of Bill Mounts. Um, He's a good man, but his, his, you have to understand where he's coming from now as their interpretation. He says this, Robert Mount says, uh, first of all, turn to Revelation, verse, chapter 20. Would someone read 20, verses 1 to 7 for me? <coughs> Revelation 20, 1 to 7. Okay, um, keep your, stay in Revelation, we're going to be there for a while. Um, but I think Brad read the number 1,000 maybe six times in that passage. Okay, Robert Mount says this. In a book, he's talking about Revelation, in a book where almost all numbers seem to have, seem to have symbolic value, that is seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, 144,000 Israelites, 42 months, three and a half years, these all seem to have symbolic value, he says. It should not, uh, should not 1,000 years in Revelation 20, indicate a long period of time rather than a number of calendar years. So he's saying it's just symbolic, that number. Anthony Hokema, another amillennialist, says this, a thousand years stands for a complete period, a very long period of indeterminate length. You just can't, just, there's no way we can know what it means. It's indeterminate. It's a, it's a, it's a certain, it's a sermon, a certain length, a long period of time, we don't know what, okay? So, 
Look at Revelation chapter 7, verse 4. Somebody, somebody read Revelation 7, 4. And I heard the number of those who were healed, 144,000, healed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Okay, is, is Israel here? If this, what does this number 144,000 mean? Well, Amillennial will say it's symbolic. They would say Israel maybe here is the church. Um, uh, so if these numbers are symbolic, 144,000 and 1,000 and so on, does that mean all numbers in Revelation are symbolic? If that's the case, how do we know? And how do we are able to interpret anything from that point num numer numerically? Tim? I don't know. That, that one I don't know. I couldn't get a hold of a commentary on Revelation from an amillennialist to find out. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I wish I could had time to go in depth and study everything they believe on Revelation. I, I wish I could, but it's time and, and trying to find a, the information. I could find the information, but I don't know, Tim, because I wanted to know myself and never had time to get to it. Um, <clears throat> what about, look at Revelation 11.3. Somebody read Revelation 11.3. How many witnesses? Two. Is that two? Or is it something else? I don't know. What is it? What about 1,260 days? How, many, how much time is that? Is it really, or do we not know? How can we be sure? Um, the uh, what about look at eleven thirteen, Wendell? What's up? What's that, Wendell? Yeah. Okay, Wendell. I'm. I'm. Yeah. I'm thinking like an amillennialist. Yeah, I think it means 1,260 days and two witnesses. Two people, 1,260 actual days. Um, you can say it's a Jewish calendar or whatever, that's fine. 1,260 days. But amillennials are taking, are taking numbers uh, symbolically in Revelation. So I don't, okay. You take, look at the 1113. What does that say? Well, did 7,000 people die? Or is that some number we can't determine what it really means? You see where this goes? You know, if we keep doing this in Revelation, what, what's the difference between 7,000 and 1,000? In another passage. Well, isn't that true in, in any part of the Bible that has years, days? Another good point I was going to raise. Yeah, I'll just say, I'll say that in a second. For, uh, uh, Ernesto, I almost called you the Honorable Ronaldo's name. So... Uh, Chapter 7, verses 5 to 8 talks about the, 12, the 144,000 being divided into 12,000 each. Is that 12,000 or is it something else? Uh, what about the numbers, as he said, in the rest of the Bible? Do they mean anything? The, the, for example, when, did Judas betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver? 
Was it 30 pieces of silver? Does that mean anything at all? Or was it like, is that new number that means greed or something? What does it mean? So I'm, I'm, saying, I'm saying all this because, look, how do we interpret numbers in Revelation? Do they mean something or do they not mean anything? I can understand if, if uh, uh, you know, you say uh, there's certain things that are said, like uh, in the day, in Genesis, in the day that God created man, Adam and Eve. I can understand that as a, a, fi- a general term, you know. He's talking about the time he created them, not a 24-hour literal day in that verse. In Genesis 1, there's 24-hour literal days, okay? But in that verse, he says, in the day God, he's looking back in the, you know, in the time God created Adam and Eve. I can understand that kind of language. I get it. But when we come to Revelation and we start saying numbers don't mean anything at all, where does that lead us to? Stephen? Good. Yeah. Okay, there's, there's the take on, from non-millennialist, Greg Beal, who we heard speak at the Shepherds Conference, by the way, on another subject. He's a, he's a good man, you know, but he's got this view of, what did he say, Tim? What was the completeness? And you ask another question or not? You, you able to see that, 12,000? Greg Beal gave a, a great message, by the way, but it was on something else. It had to do with inerrancy. Okay, at any rate, we have, you know, so that's why I'm just telling you what these guys, how these guys view this so we can see, okay, how do we need to view Revelation? Do we just throw it up in the air and say, well, the numbers, we don't even know what they're talking about. Or they re- they're, they're representative of something. Is every number in Revelation representative of something else? Or we can't figure it out. So, we have, so when we come to numbers, we take them in the normal sense unless otherwise indicated. Number three, view prophecy as focusing primarily on the Messiah. On the Messiah, it's, uh, isn't isn't ultimately prophecy wrapped up in Jesus, right? Um, the, the J- Revelation nineteen ten, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I mean, it's all about him. It's all about his coming again. Revelation one seven, behold, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Uh, it talks about his, his eschatology's got to do with the future rule and reign of Christ. Revelation nineteen eleven to fifteen. Talks about that, how he's going to rule. Look at Revelation 19, <coughs> 19, 11, 15. I saw heaven open, behold, a white horse. He who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him, which no man knows but himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped, robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. The armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen follow him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, it says. Treads down, treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. So it's about him, his reign, his rule. We have, uh, our hope is, in, is in, a few, in Christ, right? Titus 2.11, looking for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So primarily, primarily think in terms of prophecy, really, you know, we, we try to... We are always worried about a lot of stuff, right, in prophecy, but it's always focused on Christ ultimately. Number four, recognize the principle of foreshortening. Um, that's seeing things together, events together, and yet not realizing there's an interval between. The Old Testament prophets predicted two comings of Christ often together in the Old Testament. They didn't separate them in their minds. A lot, a lot of times it's been described this way, like two, uh, two mountain peaks with a valley between them. 
and the prophets saw the mountain peaks, they didn't see the valley between them. Um, so they couldn't see the time gap. For example, let's look at some examples. If someone would turn to Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And I'm going to turn to Luke chapter 4, verse 16. What does Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 say? Okay, that's the passage in the Old Testament. Jesus reads that in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Um, he came to Nazareth, Jesus did, where he'd been brought up. He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. The book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book, the scroll, and found the place where it was written. <clears throat> By the way, he didn't have chapter divisions back then. He's unrolling the scroll, finding the place where it was written. That's why I think sometimes in Hebrews it says, yeah, it's written somewhere in the Old Testament, something about... Because, you know, they didn't have chapter numbers and verses, you know. That, made, that makes sense to me. But Christ reads this in verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. And this is where he stops, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. So what's after to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord in Isaiah 61? He didn't read the words... And the day of the vengeance of our God. That's a reference to the second coming. So you got these two first and second comings listed together in Isaiah 61. And Christ gets up there and quotes part of this, uh, at least. So, but they're seen together in the Old Testament, separated by the New Testament. Look at Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. Somebody read that. It's another example of this foreshortening idea. Hold on for a second, Lee. What is that talking about? Isaiah 9, 6. Yeah, the incarnation, the first coming. And then verse 7, Lee? Or the rest of that verse? Or? Yeah, so now we're talking about the government being on his shoulder. That's obviously another time. Uh, he's going to rule on the throne of David. It's obviously his second coming, right? So seen together in the Old Testament, but we know that there's two comings uh, listed or, or later on in the New Testament. Zechariah 9, 9 and 10 is another one. Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Zion. Tell me what this is. Verse 9. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What's that talking about? That prophecy. Christ win though. Yeah, the tri what we call the triumphal entry. Entry during his second coming, Mike, or first? <clears throat> first coming. Then in verse 10, Zechariah 9.10, I'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the horse from Jerusalem, the bow of war will be cut off, he will speak peace to the nations, his dominion will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. So now you have a future reign and rule in the next verse. And that's how they did it oftentimes. Now the Old Testament prophets didn't always know how things were going to be worked out exactly. They knew a lot. They knew certain things, probably more than we even think they did, but they didn't know other things. 
First Peter 10, 1 Peter 1.10 and 11 says this, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, they searched intently with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Those two things. They didn't understand everything about it, but they, uh, they predicted these events under the inspiration of Scripture. And then you, the same thing is true of the prophecy of Joel in Joel 2. Uh, and he talks about uh, the day of the Lord, Joel 2, 28-32. And, uh, and then Peter quotes that prophecy in Acts 2, verses 14-21. Um, there was only a partial fulfillment in, in uh, Peter's day of that. Because the, blood's gonna, the moon's going to turn into blood, it says there. But there's going to be a future where that's going to be fulfilled. So that's how the Old Testament saw things together. You know, they, didn't see, they saw the two mountain peaks, but not the valley between them. <clears throat> so we, we have to think about it. We have to consider that when we read the, the Bible. Number five, look for God's built-in interpretation. Uh, turn to Daniel. Look for God's built-in interpretation. This is always great. If you want to understand prophecy, hey, if it, if it says something there that interprets it for you, say, thank you, Lord, for that. <laughs> And don't, don't skip over that one because you got, you got a heads up there already. Uh, Daniel 2, for example, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And uh, not Joseph. Daniel has to interpret the dream. And, uh, and so he does this. And, and Daniel goes and says, uh, King, this was your dream. And then look at verse 36 of Daniel 2. Daniel 2.36. This was the dream. Now we'll tell its interpretation before the king. Now, this is great. We're, we don't have to search for this interpretation. It's right here. It's built in, right? You're the king. You, a king, are the king of kings, Nebuchadnezzar. Him, the God of heaven, has given the glory, kingdom, power, strength, and glory, and wherever the sons of men dwell, you're, you're the head of gold, okay? That's what he gets at, the statue. You're the head of gold. Verse 39. Uh, After you, there will rise another kingdom, inferior to you. Then a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over the earth. Then a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron. And then uh, he goes on in verse 44, In the days of those kings, God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. So he, he starts predicting, he really predicts all the way to the end time here. This is a, a great prophecy here. So looking back in history now, we know Babylon was in power. We know Media Persia uh, conquered Babylon the night that Belshazzar was having his party, by the way. They were outside the walls trying to come in, and they got in and, and got him. And then Greece took over, and then Rome took over, and there's a future kingdom yet to come. We know all these things. But it's, it's built in for us, that interpretation. So don't overlook those things. Look at Daniel chapter 7. We, you know, don't puzzle your head over things that are explained already. Daniel 7, 23. It says here, Thus he said, the fourth beast, talking about the fourth beast, will be a fourth kingdom on earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth. Tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns out of his kingdom, ten kings will arise. Talked about ten horns. We know that now based on this interpretation, those, those represent ten kings. We know it because he says it right here. Here's another interpretation. Look at Daniel 8, 20. Talks about a ram and a, and a, and a goat. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the king of Media and Persia. Well, that's nice. There's the interpretation right there. We don't have to look for it any further. 21, the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Who was the first king of Greece back then? Huh? Alexander the Great. 
Uh, okay, look at Revelation. Back to Revelation again. Revelation 120. Was it Alexander? I want to say that it's Alexander the Great, I believe. There's a historical reference, not in the Bible, too, I believe. Alexander the Great, if I'm not mistaken, going through Palestine and, and somebody showing him, you've been prophesied about. <laughs> That's weird, man. Uh, look at, I wish I had that reference. Revelation 120. Here's an, here's an interpretation for us. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw at my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars, here it is, are the angels of the seven churches. Seven lampstands are the seven churches. Wow, doesn't get any clearer than that, does it? Revelation 4, 5. <clears throat> Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. There were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. Now, what are the seven lamps of fire? Which are the seven spirits of God? Okay, so he explains it to us. Look at Revelation 12, verse 9. Talks about this dragon in Revelation 12, um, 3. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. And then in verse 9, uh, verse 7, there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought, waged war. Verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. So we know who it is. Now, not everything is explained to us in Revelation or the prophecies or prophetic portions of the Bible, but don't fail to notice what is explained to us. And then number six, compare parallel passages. When you're studying Daniel 7, study it in light of Revelation 13 or vice versa. Um, notice the, the parallel passages that pertain to each other. The end of Joel should be studied along with Revelation 19. Um, passages that are talking about the millennium should be studied together like Isaiah 9. 24, Joel 2, Zechariah 14, Revelation 20, and so on. All those kind of things. So keep those things in mind when you're studying prophecy. And then, uh, this wasn't in, in, in this book, but I wanted to talk about this for a little while. Uh, I wanted to give you some thoughts about this apocalyptic genre. Because you hear about this, I keep hearing about apocalyptic genre all the time. Well, we've got to go with apocalyptic genre. And we have to study that and what is that? What is apocalyptic genre? Anyway, uh, it used to be called prophecy, but now apparently it's called apocalyptic genre. Well, first of all, in uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I think the Greek word there is apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. That's apocalypse, okay? And the, and the word simply means the unveiling of Jesus Christ, the revealing, that's all it means, the revealing of Jesus Christ. So, Back in the 1990s, a guy named Craig Blomberg wrote an article called New Testament Genre Criticism from the 1990s. And he wrote this article and he says, The 20th century has given birth to many new critical tools for biblical scholarship. One of the newer of these disciplines is genre criticism. Now we talked about genres here, didn't we? We talked about how you should understand that when you're in different parts of the Bible, you have different genres you're confronting, like wisdom literature has its own has a genre to itself, and yet we don't throw away historical grammatical interpretation. We just understand we're dealing with wisdom literature. Proverbs, let's face it, is written a little differently than, you know, 1 Samuel is, because you've got these little short sayings, right? But we don't throw away historical grammatical interpretation. So it has its place. 
now, John Rez pertaining to the Bible started in earnest in the latter part of the 20th century. That's when it really got its great start. Not that it never existed. It's just that it started seriously being classified in the end of the 20th century that we just came out of, okay? And it began to be used on a regular basis. Robert Thomas, who was a teacher of MICAD in Master Seminary, wrote this book. This is, this is an advanced hermeneutics book they took in the for, uh, fourth year of that class, I think. Or New Testament introduction they took, but I think that was part of it. But anyway, Robert Thomas says this, Genre classification has affected how scholars have interpreted various New Testament books, particularly which book? Revelation, right? Last book of the New Testament. Now we're, we're told to, uh, we must interpret certain passages in the Bible, like Revelation, and like Ezekiel 37 and 38, and like Daniel 7 to 12, by using apocalyptic, apocalyptic genre. We're told this. This is the thing now. now. I never heard this term growing up. Never heard it. Never heard it for years. Just started hearing it re relatively recently, actually. And people talked about prophecy back in the day. They didn't talk about apocalyptic genre. That's the buzzword now. If you're not cool, if you're not using apocalyptic genre. And this book, Cracking Old Testament Codes, there's a whole chapter written on that by a guy named Brent Sandy, okay? He's one of the editors of this book. Um, what's happened is this. I, I wanted you to be aware of this because I see it all the time now. And you'll, you're eventually going to see it and you'll, and you'll be influenced by it or people are going to be influenced by it, churches and pastors. and you know, Seminaries come up with stuff, okay? And they pass it down and they train pastors. They train guys to be pastors. They go out and pastor churches. They tell their churches this stuff. And it, goes to, and it keeps getting filtered down all the time. That's what always happens. And so this is what's happening right now. What's happening is with this apocalyptic genre is that I'm afraid that people are departing from grammatical historical interpretation because of it. They're kind of departing from it now. And I don't know everything about it. I just wanted you to be aware of what was going on. This is all the rage now, apocalyptic genre. Okay, When you read in, in books, these guys talk about it in here. How to read the Bible for all it's worth. Okay, and we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, but one of the things that concerns me is this is a recent hermeneutical invention. It's not time-tested over the years. It started in the, the end of the 20th century in earnest. People begin to push it hard, okay, and they're pushing it now. And so come up with this book right here, which has got many good things in it and good people who wrote it, different chapters, by the way. But this chapter concerns me on apocalyptic genre, okay? It's the new kid on the block, so, but we need to understand what this genre is based on. Now, Brent Sandy, as I said, wrote this chapter on uh, cracking Old Testament codes, apocalyptic genre. Here's some of the rules Sand Brent Sandy has for interpreting, interpreting books like Revelation. Here's some of the rules we go by. Number one, study biblical apocalyptic books like Revelation in the light of apocalyptic ways of thinking in the ancient world. Think about that for a minute. We study apocalyptic literature like Revelation in the light of apocalyptic ways of thinking in the ancient world. I thought he was going to say, interpret it in light of historical and grammatical interpretation. He didn't say that, nor does he ever say that, by the way, in this chapter. Um, in this book, I read the chapter on Revelation in this book. Um, interesting chapter. Uh, Fee, Gordon Fee says here, or yeah, it's got to be Fee, I'm sure, because New Testament. The Revelation is primarily an apocalypse, key word. 
It is only one, though a very special one to be sure, of dozens of apocalypses that were well known to Jews and Christians from about 200 B.C. to 200 A.D. Okay? There's a lot of literature floating around back then. At the time the Bible was written, New Testament was written, and at the end of the Old Testament, that was considered apocalyptic literature. For, uh, he says also this, One must have a sensitivity to the rich background of ideas that have gone into the composition of Revelation. The chief source of these ideas and images is the Old Testament. That's true. A lot of Old Testament plays into Revelation. You have to understand the Old Testament to understand Revelation. But John also derived images from apocalyptic literature and even from ancient mythology. Well, that's a strange statement. Uh, then he says, uh, one final note, apocalypses in general and the Revelation in particular seldom intended to give a detailed chronological account of the future not really what they're all about there's a there's a big a picture a message you're trying to get across so he says um, there was there was certain literature being written at that time that, that was extra biblical literature not Bible literature that in that literature it contained things like symbolism and revelation through through visions and angelic guides and manifestations of the kingdom of God and the final final showdown between good and evil and uh, they call that apocalyptic literature. And so guys begin to study this, and they said, wait a minute. Since the Bible was written about the same time, we need to understand the Bible in light of this apocalyptic literature. Because Revelation sounds like that to us. And so Sandy says this, not my wife, Brent Sandy. She, he says, understanding, listen to this statement, understanding the biblical examples of apocalyptic, of apocalyptic like Revelation, Within the scope of non-biblical examples is essential. We need to understand the Bible, uh, we need to understand Revelation, for example, within the scope of non-biblical examples. That's essential. In other words, we, we need to understand the apocalyptic literature that was written back in the day, back around the first century. You cannot really understand Revelation without understanding those, those books. Well, that's concerning to me. Sounds rather odd that we've got to, look, we, under, we need to understand the ancient world from which the, the Word of God came. We need to understand their customs. And we've talked about this a million times. Put ourselves back in that world and understand what they were thinking and going through. I get all that. I don't have a problem with that. But in order for, for me to understand Revelation, I now have to go back and understand the apocalyptic literature that was written during that time. Well, that sounds weird. Number two, Brent Sandy says, expect apocalyptic to be full of metaphorical language. I don't have a problem with that. There's a lot of metaphorical language in Revelation, Mike. Yeah, that's right. And Shepherd of Shepherd of Hermes is a is a, a, a literature. That's one of the things I read that was written back then. And we've got to understand if we read things like that. Which, by the way, nobody knows who the author was of that. We've got to understand from books like that. There's others too. I wasn't going to read those, but I'm glad you brought it up, Mike. Um, there's other books, never going to find it, but written back then. Go ahead, Mike. Uh, yeah. That's exactly, I couldn't have put any better, Jimmy. 
up and hold up which one I'm going to trust. I'm going to go with the word of God. You know, this over here could be whatever. That's my understanding of what he's saying. Yeah. Uh, that's what I hear him saying. I read it, and that's, I read it again, and I read it again, and I read it again to make sure I wasn't wrong. And that's what he keeps yeah, saying. Yeah. Because I thought, oh, we got the cool book now. Stephen gave me this for my birthday. You can blame him a long time, a couple <laughs> years ago. And there's a lot of good things in here. A lot of good men that wrote good things in here, very good. Then I got to this chapter, and I thought, huh? I was kind of perplexed. Um, Yeah. Very true. Extra biblical understanding. What you people need, here's he's uh, Thomas quotes Trepid of Hermanson here as well, Mike. Uh, and. Uh, other books, I can't find them now. What you guys need is an extra biblical understanding of things here. That's what you really need to understand Revelation. Now listen, Sandy says this. Expect apocalyptic literature to be full of metaphorical language. Don't have a problem with that. Revelation's got that in it, okay? But then he says this. The compelling scenes and images in Revelation are intended to draw readers into the story so they can experience it like a child enraptured in a fairy tale. Now he's not saying that Revelation's a fairy tale. He's saying they want to experience it. We can experience it like a child enraptured in a fairy tale. Is that the purpose? I don't think that's the purpose of that. Uh, number three, Brent Sandy says, do not attempt to identify the significance of every detail in apocalyptic literature like Revelation. The metaphorical, his direct quote, the metaphorical language of apocalyptic, man, it's hard to say that word, often cannot be deciphered, partially because its language is so unique that other uses of scripture of similar motifs may be of little value for understanding apocalyptic. The meaning of a motif may vary within the same piece of literature. Here's what he said. I got two problems with what he said. Number one, you can't cross-reference you can't, you can't cross Revelation with the rest of the Bible and really necessarily make sense of it. Because um, he says that it, it cannot be often deciphered even with other uses of scripture with the same motif, same general idea, you can't really get a connection necessarily because the language in Revelation is just so unique. You just can't even, you can't even decipher it at times. Okay, I'm not saying that we can't, we understand every jot and tittle of the Bible, but I am saying, seems like he's going way off base here. That's one problem I have. And another problem I have is he's saying the meanings of terms can change within the same book of Revelation. It can mean one thing in this reference and another thing in this reference. Well, that sounds weird too to me. The more I read about this, I thought, wait a minute, I thought this apocalyptic literature was the cool thing to do nowadays. Number four, keep all options open for how apocalyptic predictions will be fulfilled. Keep all your options open. We don't know how the Bible's, the Revelation is going to be fulfilled, okay? We are dealing with the unknown here. There's two main uh, goals that apocalyptic literature has. It's talking about heaven and it's talking about the future. And we don't understand either, either one of those things. Language is very... Uh, language is very limited, so it's hard to explain the unknown. So, keep your when you go to Revelation, keep your options open about how things are going to be fulfilled in the future. We're, in fact, he says in another place somewhere I read that we may have to re-examine all our systems of interpretation 
because now we have the key that unlocks the door to the meaning of Revelation, apocalyptic literature written back between uh, second, uh, 208, uh, B.C. and 200 A.D. Uh, by the way, um, well, that's number five. Seek to understand the main point of an apocalyptic text. That's the next rule he has. This, and then he compares the, this genre, apocalyptic, like an abstract painting. Have you ever, guys ever watched, looked at an abstract painting like, was it Picasso, abstract guy or not? And you look at it, if you're like me, you know, I like, uh, what's his name? The guy that drew the picture with the lights and the houses and all that. Not Van Gogh. The Bible guy. Kincaid. Kincaid, yeah, right, right. He drew these cool pictures like the English countryside, like England and all that stuff. Little, you know, rivers flowing around. And he like the lights. There's a light in every, you know, always in his houses. There's lights lit and all that. It's really cool pictures. It looks like houses, you know, and it looks like rivers. And it looks like trees and all that stuff. Then you look at an abstract painting and you're like, I don't really understand this. But these guys are saying this is genius, you know. You know, like uh, Picasso's got all these weird stuff, I think, and I don't get it. Okay. Genre, apocalyptics like abstract painting. If you stand too close to it, looking at it real close, you don't really, you can't see it very good. You, gotta, you can't see, you see details, but you don't understand any of it. You've got to back off so you can settle for a general impression. Oh, okay, well, with the Picasso, by the way, I, don't, I hope I'm not getting the wrong guy here. You look, when you step back, I still don't know what's going on, either way. But he says this. Sometimes the details, listen to this, in apocalyptic are for dramatic effect. They're given for dramatic effect. There may be no significance other than how the imagery of the scene is enhanced by the details. What we've got to do is worry about the big picture, not the details. Now, I'm not saying that every single detail in Revelation is trying to convey some truth about, you know, the coming of Christ. It may be part of the, part of the whole story here, but I'm just saying, he says, don't worry about the details. It's all about the big picture impression. Get the big impression. By the way, this is another problem with genre. Also, has, is a problem with Genesis 1 through 11. There's this thing called polemical genre some people use. And basically, you suspend all the rules of, of uh, ordinary uh, hermeneutics, historical, grammatical. And, and if you do that, you can look into Genesis 1 11. You can read into it in Old Earth. You can read into it theistic evolution, local floods. Uh, instead of the global flood and all that. See, this genre thing, you've got to be careful with. It can be, you know, it can get out of control. And, and then you, you don't even know what's going on. A guy named Andy Woods, who's a good guy from Dallas, he wrote an article called Dispensational Hermeneutics, The Matter of Genre. And he warns about apocalyptic genre. And he says this. Here's some things he says about apocalyptic genre that are warnings. Number one, it becomes difficult to approach the text literally in apocalyptic genre. Very difficult to approach it literally. In apocalyptic literature, symbolism, this is this quote, symbolism is the rule, literalism is the exception. It's all about symbols. Other parts of the Bible may just be the opposite of that, but not Revelation. The Apostle John is speaking in hyperbole, you have to understand. He's speaking in, exa he's speaking in an exaggerated way for effect. They call it a heightened, heightened language. So when you go to Revelation 16 and 18 and it talks about an earthquake, um, that can't be taken literally. Earthquake? Is that a real earthquake or something else? So it's speaking in heightened language. And it's probably in all likelihood representing a past event like the oppression of, of the people uh, of, of Jer Jerusalem by Rome, for example. People, the Jewish people being oppressed by Rome. That's what this 
so-called earthquake may be talking about. You see what I'm saying? You throw away a whole, the whole system of interpret uh, interpretation that we have for this. Number two, Andy Wood says, in apocalyptic literature, there can be layer of meanings applied to terms rather than one meaning. Layer of meanings. We talked about this. For example, in Revelation 17, 18, 17 and 18, it talks about Babylon. Uh, but you have to understand, in apocalyptic genre, this Babylon is not only referring to a future Babylon, but it's also referring to ancient Jerusalem as well in this passage. So then we have to ask the question, do words and sentences have one meaning or more than one meaning? And, and, and I just read in the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, which is a very good statement back in 1978, they say, and the, the standard historical grammatical thing, words have one meaning. And maybe it, can, it, can, it may be pointing to something else, but there's one me meaning to it. Number three, in apocalyptic language, secret codes are used to disguise the identity of the enemy of God's people. Code language. Um, the reason they use code language is because of fear of retaliation. They don't want to name the enemies of God's people blatantly and then be retaliated against. So they hid, it, they hid that language with a code term. So Babylon, for example, in Revelation might be a code term, and, and usually this is how it's interpreted by these guys. It's a code term for Rome. It's a code term for Rome. When John wrote Revelation, when he said Babylon, he meant Rome. The reason he did that, he's disguising the enemy with a code word. That's apocalyptic genre. And then, number four, the numbers in Revelation are also affected. Um, in apocalyptic uh, genre, numbers convey the idea of concepts, not a unit. Concepts, not a unit. In other words, numbers are symbolic. They don't mean anything. Well, that's what... That's what millennialists think anyway already. Um, so just this is the way this 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 is the way it's going. Interpretation always goes this way. It did from the beginning centuries of church history. You know, uh, allegorism, and now it's everything symbolic, and you can't really understand things and all this. So, what do we do with all this? Well, first of all, turn to Revelation again, Revelation one three. It's better to call this instead of saying, look. Let's classify Revelation under apocalyptic genre. It's better to say this is prophecy, prophetic literature. Because that's what John calls it. Look at John 1.3. Blessed is he who reads, those who hear the words of the prophecy, and hear, heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. Um, look at chapter 22, verse 7. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 10, he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 19, if anyone takes away from the words of, this, of the book of this prophecy. And it goes on. So I think it's better to classify this like, like John does, just because he used the, word, the, the Greek word apocalypsis. And in Revelation 1, 1 doesn't mean that now, well, what John meant was we got to go back to apocalyptic literature back in the early centuries. Does anybody have any questions about this so far? Tim? Yeah, it's a revealing of the things of God, ultimately. 
Right, it's not used, that word isn't used to describe the rest of the Bible like that, but that it is an unveiling of God's will. You could call it the, what he has revealed will. Yeah. Right. Right. I agree. Yeah, you have to be careful. Right, you have to be careful about that. Robert Thomas, in his book, Evangelical Hermeneutics, has a chapter. This chapter is called Genre Override in Revelation. In other words, the genre of apocalyptic is overriding Revelation and controlling everything about it. He says this, a relatively new field of specialized, listen to this, a relatively new field, we already talked about this, a specialized New Testament study, Blomberg already told us that back, back in the 1990s, is a careful examination of the literary genre of, or style of different books. The whole field is relatively new, by the way, okay? Uh, as far as being full-blown as it is now. Revelation has often been classified as a kind of literature called apocalyptic, but the category of prophetic is probably a better classification for the book. The book calls itself a prophecy. If the genre were primarily apocalyptic, this might constitute a basis for interpreting the book in a non-literal way. The preterist, by the way, these guys all interpret in a non-literal way. The preterist, tradition his historical, continuous historical, and idealist approaches to the book have at times spiritualized the book in accord with the assumption that its apocalyptic style makes it different from other books. If the book is basically prophetic, however, only a literal interpretation will suffice. The visional means through which God communicated the revelation to John lend themselves to literal interpretation by the book's readers, which allow for normal figures of speech. Nothing unusual about that at all. Now, what's the differences between apocalyptic and prophetic literature? There's several, but let me just give you a few. Uh, maybe the biggest one is that the apocalyptic literature is basically pseudonymous, they call it. It's a pseudonym. In other words, it was written by, nobody knows who wrote the book. Or it was written by a guy who claimed to be an apostle or something, but really wasn't. Now, that's not true of the Bible. Uh, the Bible, we know, who, who wrote Revelation? John, the apostle, right? Okay, you go to the Shepherd of Hermes, and I think nobody knows who wrote it. Or it's claimed to be written by somebody who's really not. This happens a lot of time in ancient literature. Uh, the, what was that, the Epistle of Barnabas, Stephen, that I talked about the other day? Um, Epistle of Barnabas was written in the 2nd century, not by Barnabas in Acts, but a guy who's claiming to be Barnabas or a guy writing under the name of Barnabas. That's the, apocalyptic literature did that kind of stuff. But not the Bible, it never does that. It's just it's the truth. And then in apocalyptic literature, you, had, you, have, uh, admin, you had people, in apocalyptic literature, you don't have anybody saying anything about being moral or anything like that. But in the Bible, you do. In, in apocalyptic literature, or rather in, in Revelation, you do. You, Bible, you know, the Lord says to the churches, hey, I want you to live this way. You don't see that in apocalyptic literature back in the day. And then uh, the prophecy, prophecy is inspired. Whereas, as Ernesto, point, or, or as Jimmy pointed out earlier, you have the uninspired works of men in apocalyptic. So we're just supposed to take the Revelation and, and go back and put it underneath, superimpose on it the... Uh, apocalyptic literature, and, and interpret it that way. See it through that lens. I don't think so. I'm not going to do that, at least. So they, this is, 
they're running wild with this thing, and it's out of control. And even Brent Sandy in, in the book says, well, you know, we can't understand everything, and everything works and all that. Shane, do you have a question? Or Ernesto? Especially say that. Right. It was in literally, in, it could be in the early 60s, maybe in the late 70s, when John was in Ephesus. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, and I always go back, if that's the case, then the canon is wrong. Because I put the canon together. So we want to any book in the Bible to be wrong. That's right. And preterists, in particular, say that Jesus came and spiritually came in 70 AD. Uh, they can't have a revelation written in 95 AD. They can't have that. So they're going to have it earlier than 70 AD or it blows their whole theory out of the water. Right, but the history states that John wasn't... No, I agree. Patmos in the 90s. Well, I, I agree that he wrote it in the 90s, yes. Right. It was in so Patmos, right. Right. That's the Right. Anybody else have any questions? Right. That would take away everything that God said. You know, with any believer, you should be able to take the Bible and get a clear understanding of what God has been doing about salvation. Yeah, um, like Mike said, it's all it's just for scholars. And, and it's like uh, Tyndall said, uh, I'm going to make it so one day, he wanted to translate the Bible in English, I'm going to make it so one day that a plowboy can read the Bible. Because the Catholic Church didn't want anybody reading it. You know? Here's some examples of apocalyptic literature besides the Shepherd of Hermas. There was the Apocalypse of James, always a thrilling read right there, by the way. Apocalypse of Paul, another page-turner. Apocalypse of Thomas, the Ascension of Isaiah, that's pretty awesome. Apocalypse of Peter, all those are examples of apocalyptic literature. And so you, you get all these, these kinds of literature, and then you're able to put them together and say, oh, this is how apocalyptic, uh, this is, Revelation looks like this like these guys writing, so therefore now we can understand how to interpret Revelation. These visions and all this stuff going on. So, anyway, that's apocalyptic. I just wanted to, that, that's not an exhaustive look at it, by the way. Um, certainly not even a, a great look at it, but it is a look at it, so I want you to understand, have some understanding of that, because that's the thing nowadays um, genre has its place just don't let it get out of control and have a place that it was never intended to have